Welcome back. First off, I do want to give you a little heads up. This episode is a bit more violent than most. Nothing too crazy or leering, but if you do listen with younger listeners, it might be something to check out yourself first. With that being said, this episode of History in the Making is a little bit different. So if you want a little more context, both for this episode or just for the show in general, you can listen to the previous episode last week. Or if you really want to get a good idea of what's going on, go all the way back to episode one and start there. But you are welcome just to dive in if you just want to learn about the Battle of Plataea, because that's all we're going to be covering today. The story leading immediately up to the battle, the battle itself, and just right after, because as we're going to see, you can uncover quite a lot about a civilization simply by what they do on the battlefield. In the end, it's our ideals, our values that built America. From the crew of Apollo 8. Values that allowed us to forge a nation. We close with good night. To me, the flag has been more than just merely an inspiration. Good luck. I am not a perfect servant. I am a public servant. And God bless all of you. They have chosen to risk death rather than slavery. All of you on the good earth. And therein lies the road to war. This is History in the Making. I'm Rob Sims, and you're listening to Episode 9, Plataea. When Mardonius, the Persian general that is still in Greece, with the flower of the Persian army, hears what the Athenians have to say about his offer, hear that not only do they turn him down, but they put a curse on anybody that is even considering talking to the Persians. He gathers his army, and he begins to move south. And as he does, he gathers other Greek city-states to him. He pulls people like the Phocians and the Thessalians, so that as he moves south, he's swelling bigger and bigger, like this tidal wave that's about to crush Athens. He dispatches the Argives, the people from Argos, to block the Spartans from coming up and intercepting his army. The pass of the Spartans is blocked. There's nobody between him and Athens, and his army is getting bigger. He arrives at Athens, and when he does, it's empty. There's nobody there. He walks into Athens without a fight. This is less than a year after the Battle of Salamis, and Athens has been abandoned again. They heard of his approach, and so once again, they left their homes that they've only been in for less than a year and gone back to take shelter on the island of Salamis. But Mardonius doesn't want to spend all the time and the effort to hunt these people down and actually fight them, so he sends them an offer. He sends them, once again, a messenger to the people on Salamis. This messenger arrives, finds the Athenians, and presents his message to the council. Once again, come over to my side, I'll make it worth your while. And think about how desperate these people must feel right now. They've abandoned their homes twice in one year. And so when this offer is made, there's one man on this council who thinks this isn't a bad idea. He suggests that maybe it is in their best interest to go over and to join the Persians, to end all this running around and this fighting, this giant empire. The rest of the Athenian council hears what he has to say, and as a response, as a rebuttal, they stone him to death. The man is killed for even considering that they should go over to the Persians. 
word of this leaks out, it goes out to the women who are also on this island of Salamis. And when they hear that the council has stoned to death this man who has suggested that they go over to the Persians, the response of the women isn't pity. It's to go stone and kill his wife and family. This wasn't just something the men were going to go do. The women wanted Greece to be free as well. We've seen the testament of the Athenian women and what they did to drive this point home. And it's a little tougher to nail down the Spartans right here. This might be a little anachronistic. But among the many works of Plutarch is one simply titled Sayings of Spartan Women. And in this we get a look into what support from the Spartan women would have looked like for this war. Some of these things we've heard before. There's the one where as a woman hands her son a shield, she says either this or upon this, meaning either bring this back to show that you fought bravely or come back upon it because you died. But there are many others in here. There's one where this woman is burying her son because he died in battle, and this old woman comes up to her and says, oh, the bad luck of it, you poor woman. And the mother says, no, this is good luck. For I bore him that he might die for Sparta, and this is the very thing that has come to pass for me. Again, this man is wounded in battle, and he's unable to walk. He comes back to Sparta, but everywhere he goes, he has to crawl on all fours. And he's very self-conscious about this. He's, he's mortified at looking so ridiculous. And his mother tells him, How much better it is to be joyful over your bravery than to be mortified at people's silly laughter. Again, this man is telling his mother the way that his brother died, her son. And as he's telling her the story, she says, Isn't it a shame then to have missed his company on such a journey? Frankly, I could do this all day. The list is huge and everyone is almost more intriguing than the next. But I'll leave you with just one final short one that occurs again and again all throughout the sayings of Spartan women some situation will occur where this rumor will get back to a mother that her son is behaving badly in some way. He's disgraced himself in battle. He's behaving badly in a foreign land. There are rumors about him, whatever the case may be. And every time, the response is the same. Rid yourself of the charges or rid yourself of your life. Granted, a lot of these sayings don't have dates associated with them. It's hard to really pin them down. But it gives us an idea of what the mentality of these city-states were like at the time. It's brutal. But it's a testament to how dire of a situation these people were in. The Athenians sent word to Sparta that they needed help. Most people say they sent Aristides. A few mentioned that it might have been Simon, the son of Miltiades. But regardless, the Spartans at first play their usual game of dancing around and, yeah, we can be there, give us a little bit, we have a religious festival going on, but the long and short of it is that this time they do help out. They march north towards the Persians. They start moving towards Athens. And when they do, remember, Mardonius, before he left, he sent these Argives, these hoplites from Argos, to block the Spartans so that they couldn't get out of the Peloponnese. The Argives hear that the Spartans are coming and promptly turn around and leave. They go to Athens, they find Mardonius, and essentially give them the message that the Spartans are coming, and truth be told, we really can't do anything about it. So Mardonius, realizing that he's going to have to fight the combined forces of Greece, 
burns everything in Athens. He tears down what's left of the walls. He sets the temples on fire. He rips the houses down and heads north with his army back to the plains of Greece where his cavalry have a better advantage. And the Greeks follow. The Spartans are on the move with at least 5,000 hoplites and each one of these hoplites has seven helots assigned to them. Helots being the pseudo-slave class. Remember, they're owned by the state, not an individual person. But this is one of the few ways that they can actually win their freedom, is fighting for Sparta in war. So this massive Spartan force moves north, but if you were watching it, something you would notice is not only are there a lot of hoplites and light soldiers, the helots, as you'd expect, but you'd also see a lot of animals, not just the ones for supplies and food, but when a king would move north, or any general would move north, they would bring with them a trail of animals, and these were sacrificial victims. We've gone over how important religion is to the Spartans. They never did anything without a sign. And so each king of Sparta, when they would go into war, they would have a trail of victims as the ancients put it, a sacrificial animal with them so that they could make sacrifices at will to read the signs. And if you remember in last episode, we talked about what this would do to your mentality when you were going into war. If you can make a sacrifice at any time you needed and then have divine prophecy on the outcome of that battle, you would either know that you were going to certain victory or know that you were going to death. Either way, almost any time the Spartans marched out to war, they already knew the outcome of the battle before the first blow was struck. You combine this with their training and their general mentality, and frankly, fighting the Spartans must have just been a nightmare. And leading this army of Spartans was a man named Pausanias. He was in effect a general. He was the leader of the entire Greek army, but he wasn't a king. One of the kings, remember there were two for Sparta, one is out in charge of the navy. The other is just a kid. He's the son of Leonidas, and Leonidas was just killed a year ago. And so to fill in, for now, is Pausanias. From the Athenians, 8,000 moved north, led by Aristides. And there were so many others. The Tegeans, Corinthians, Ceans, Mycenaeans, Eretrians, Plataeans. I probably got half of those wrong. But in total, there were as many as 22 different Greek city-states that were all allied against the Persians. In total, this might have been as many as 40,000 hoplites. You stack onto that the light troops, the helots from Sparta, and you might be looking at 80,000 men. And they trickled north. Most of them didn't come in one solid group. There was the main force of the Spartans and the Athenians, of course, and a lot of the other allies, but not all of them got there at once. The Greeks set up camp. They set up camp on the opposite side of this river where the Persians had set up. And the Persians had also pulled from all sides of their empire, and so they might have numbered as much as 110,000. It's a safe bet that there are, by the time this thing kicks off, as many as 200,000 people on this battlefield. That's the same numbers as Gettysburg or Waterloo. This massive Persian army has arrayed themselves just on the other bank, on the north bank of this river. Around their baggage trains and their headquarters, they set up one-mile walls on each side. So 
it's virtually an impossible position to attack. You'd have to run across this river being shot at by the Persians and then climb over these walls and fight your way into the camp. So the Greeks stay on the other side. Not only does it look like a really tough position to attack, but being Greek, they also have a prophecy. If this battle is fought on the defensive, then they'll win. But there's another prophecy, and this one says that the battle has to take place on the Athenians' own turf in Attica. And they're not in Attica anymore. They're north of it. They're in the country of Plataea, that small little city-state that seems to always be there for Athens when they need it. Because in the past, the Athenians have helped Plataea against their enemies. And so Plataea comes to the Athenians and gives them some of their land. They move the boundary of where Plataea ends and Attica starts. And so they give the Athenians the land they're standing on so that the battle will likely take place in Athenian territory. And then the Greeks begin to decide their positions. Now, when you would line up in one of these long battle lines and one of these long phalanxes, each position in the phalanx had a certain amount of honor associated with it. The place of honor, the best place you could be, was on the right side. And that was because you only had your shield covering you. It was more exposed. You didn't have any protection from your neighbor. And so they typically put the best troops right there to hold the thing together. On the far right side of the right wing is Sparta. Sparta always takes the right wing when they're formed up with the rest of Greece. Everybody recognizes that they are the leader here. So then the question becomes, who takes the left flank? Who gets that honor? This group of people come up from this small city-state, the Tegeans, and they tell the Spartans that they should have the honor of the left flank. They start listing off all their ancestors, all the honors that they've had on their city-state, and some of the men of Athens get mad. They want the honor. They're the other biggest army here. Of course it should go to us. Both of these city-states are arguing, trying to make their case to the Spartans. When Aristides pipes up and says, you know what, just put us anywhere. It doesn't matter where you put us in the line of battle. That's not where honor is decided anyway. It's decided on the battlefield. Put us wherever you want. We'll prove our honor when the battle starts. And this shuts up everybody and impresses the Spartans. The Spartans say, you know what, you guys can go on the left flank after all. They grab the Tegeans and they put them right next to themselves on the right flank as a consolation prize. But as the Athenians are settling in on the left side, and there's so much room between these two sides, by the way, this front line of Greeks is so long that the Athenians out on the left flank and the Spartans out on the right flank can't really see each other. If they need to communicate, they have to send messengers across. So if you're standing in the Athenian army, if you were a hoplite back then and you looked forward, what you would see is off to your right, the Greek line stretching out. But it would kind of be not broken, but they're in the foothills of these mountains. So you can see down it, but the terrain is going to be blocking part of your view. And if you looked forward, it would go down into this plain and then hit a river. And on the other side of that river is where all the Persians are, camped out. The only Greeks that haven't made their camp in these foothills are the Megarians. They're camping down on the plain. And Megaria is a pretty big city. It's just northeast of Corinth. And these are the guys that are camped out on the plain, kind of by themselves. And the Persians see this, and the cavalry starts to move. They're too far out on the plain to get back to the Greek army by the time the cavalry reaches them, and so they send a runner for help, and they brace themselves. They're caught out in this no-man's land, and they can see the Persian cavalry coming towards them. 
the Persian cavalry circles around them and collapses on them. Plutarch says that they hit them like an ocean tide, sweeping in on all sides. The Greeks know that they need to send help, or these people are going to be wiped out. Posthenius looks for volunteers and doesn't find any, until Aristides volunteers the Athenians, and then picks his best captain, tells him to pick his 300 best men and some archers, and go out to save these Megarians. This group of Athenians starts to move. They're jogging out there. There are 300 hoplites accompanied by archers. The Persians see them. They pull back from the Megarians, reform, and begin to charge the Athenians. But the Athenians don't stop. The hoplites and this Persian cavalry move towards each other until the Persians blast into the Athenians. They start ripping into each other. The way that these ancient writers write about this scene just looks like total chaos. Arrows flying through the air, javelins flying through the air, people falling off horses while everyone tries to stab each other. This goes on for a bit until one random arrow goes flying through the air and just so happens to hit the horse that the cavalry commander is on. The officer falls off his horse, but he has so much armor on that when he falls, he can't get back up. But he's a brave man. And so even though he's stranded on his back with the Athenians circling in all around him trying to kill him, he keeps fighting. His armor's so heavy that he can't get up, but also prevents the Athenians from being able to kill him. They stab him several times and nothing happens. It's not until one of the Athenians take a javelin and drive it through the eye of his helmet that they kill him. Now as soon as they do this, they realize how important this guy is. The Persian cavalry immediately falls back and starts wailing in grief for their commander. You can imagine it echoing through the plains and bouncing off these mountain walls. They sheared their own hair and the manes of their horses to express their grief for this man. So the Greeks, the Athenians, and the Megarians won this little encounter, but not because of how many Persians they killed, but because they killed the right Persian. This makes the cavalry fall back, and the Greeks are able to retire back into their own forces as well. And then the stalemate sets in. You see, the prophecy for each side was that they both had to fight on the defensive in order to win the battle. So neither side wants to engage. They still keep killing animals and reading the signs and trying to get a sign that they should attack, but neither one does. So the Persians stay on their side of the river, the Greeks stay in their foothills, and they start to kick around strategy a little bit. The way both of these armies are lined up right now, off on the right flank, we have the Spartans, like we said, and then across from them are the Persians. Not the Persian army, but the actual Persians. The Persians also have people from really all over the known world, and then a lot of Greeks that have come over to the Persians as well. And so Posenius, the Spartan commander, decides that the Athenians should be the one to actually fight the Persians. They've done it before, remember, at Marathon. And that Sparta will take on the other Greeks. And so he pitches this plan to the Athenians, and the Athenians start to complain. Why are you going to put us on the right side of the army? That's exactly where the hottest part of the fight is going to take place. We don't want to fight these Persians again. And Aristides once again talks some sense into him. He says, we were just all jostling for the position of honor a few days ago. And now the Spartans want to give up the right side, the most respected side to you willingly. And you don't want to take it? And they all kind of shuffle their feet and say, well, I guess you're right, Aristides. And then they see this as a huge position of honor. 
They're ecstatic about it. And so they take up the right flank. They're facing the Persians, and they all start talking to each other. They say, hey, you remember Marathon, right? And because Marathon is only 12 years ago, there are a lot of veterans here that were at the Battle of Marathon, Aristides being a great example. And so they start to nudge each other. And they say, this is going to be just like Marathon. These guys are going to come at us with the same weapons and the same soft bodies covered in gold. Remember the trophies that are set up on Salamis and Marathon? Let's win here again, and then everyone will know it's not just because Miltiades led us at Marathon, or because we had luck in any of these battles, but because we're Athenians. That starts spreading through the troops, and the Athenians get more and more excited, and meanwhile, the Spartans willingly go over to the left flank, over to where the Athenians used to be. Mardonius, the Persian commander, sees what the Greeks are doing, this massive reshuffling, and he doesn't want any part of it. He's put himself there so that he's going to fight the Spartans. Now, in all fairness, we don't know if he was hesitant to fight the Athenians because the Persians had lost at Marathon, or if he wanted the honor of engaging the Spartans. But either way, he wanted to fight the Spartans, or he didn't want to fight the Athenians, and what that meant was that he had to move too. So he picked up the whole left flank of his army, moved it over to the right side, moved the right side over to the left side, and the Greeks saw this, and they switched back. And so there's like this giant game of very dangerous duck-duck-goose going on, each side moving its flank back and forth while the other one responds. And at this point, it's been a little over a week since they actually got there. There's still Greeks trickling in, so the Greeks are getting stronger every day. Meanwhile, the Persians, on the other hand, aren't really getting any stronger, except maybe a few deserters that come over from the Greek army now and then. But they're also low on supplies, and so really time is in the hand of the Greeks. All they have to do is wait out this Persian army. And Mardonius gets sick of this. All his seers and everybody keep telling him to wait, that we should not move. Some of the Thebans, actually, who, remember, were forced to fight in the Battle of Thermopylae and have since gone over to the Persian side. They try to convince Mardonius, don't fight him here, go to his allies, bribe a few people in the right places, and this battle's going to get a lot easier for you. Mardonius doesn't want any part of it, though. He wants to force an action. And so after days of reshuffling, going back and forth, he sends a message over to the Spartans. So picture this Persian messenger going up to the Spartan lines, and a messenger doesn't go right up to them and talk to one person, but stands in front of them and makes this big announcement to the Spartans. He calls them Lacedaemonians here. Lacedaemonians, you are said to be the best and bravest of men by the people of these parts. They are overcome with awe for you because, so they say, you neither flee from battle nor desert your post, but stand fast and either destroy your foes or destroy yourselves. But it turns out that none of this is true. For even before we have joined battle and come to close combat, we have seen you flee and abandon your assigned post to make the Athenians test us first, while you deploy yourselves opposite our slaves. It's a nice little jab at the end, calling the other Greeks that they're going to fight the Persian slaves. But it goes on like this for a while. So let's just settle this here right now. You come out. We'll come out. We'll fight just the Spartans versus just the Persians. Winner take all. The Herald makes this big announcement, shouting out to this Spartan army, and the Spartans just stand there looking at him. They don't say anything. And in the silence, this Persian messenger turns around and leaves. When he reports this back to Mardonius, though, Mardonius is encouraged. He sees this as 
a bit of a victory. Maybe the Greeks are too scared to fight. Maybe the Spartans don't want to come fight me. And so he sends his cavalry out. The Persians have all these cavalry archers. And so the cavalry is swarming in front of the Greek army. Greeks can't really do anything about it. And they're peppering them with arrows. And then because of where the Persians are, they've cut off the Greek army from the source of water. There's a spring nearby that the Spartans are kind of close to. But they have to go get water and bring it back to the army. They can't get anything from the main river where the Persians are camped by. So the whole Greek army just has to stand here, thirsty, and be peppered by the Persian cavalry. They can't do anything about it. So the Greek commanders get together and come up with a plan. They decide that during the night, they're going to fall back a bit to this other fresh water source and regroup there. So they wait for night to fall. The Persians pull back. And then once it's dark the Greeks begin to fall back as well. First, it's all the allies, all the smaller city-states in the middle start to fall back. And so there's the Athenians out on one side and the Spartans out on the other. And the Athenians are going to fall back too, but they don't quite trust the Spartans. They want to see what the Spartans are going to do first. So they send a messenger over. He's on a horse. And when he arrives at the Spartan army, he sees something kind of odd. He sees Pausinius in this really heated argument with this other Spartan. They're not trading blows or anything, but they're yelling at each other. And to really appreciate what goes on here, you have to know a little bit about how the Greeks vote. Let's say you were in Sparta and it was time to vote for one of the ephors. Now, the ephors, remember, five people who set most of the laws in Sparta. They are really the main governing body. And then there's the kings and then there's the council. But the way you would vote for these people is that they would walk through the big crowd one by one. And as they walk through the crowd, you would just start screaming if you like the guy. And so, at the end of the day, whoever got the loudest crowd would win. Compare this to the actual council of Sparta. When they would vote, they would actually be counted individually. Being counted individually was, in some ways, a sign of respect. It was validation that this one single vote really mattered. So you can compare this to Athens, where when the whole crowd of people, all 6,000 or more, would vote... It would normally be done by raising your hand, and usually this was enough to just determine visually if something passed or not. If it looks like the vast majority of the crowd is raising their hand, then great. Other times, though, when something was really close, like an ostracism, like we talked about, they would vote with clay tablets, but other times they would vote with small stones. They would drop their stones in a certain urn for a yes or a no, and then all those would be counted. And this was also how they voted at this war council. When they decided to fall back to the fresh water, they would all drop a rock. And so, now we come back to our scene. Posthenius is in this heated argument with this other Spartan. Herodotus tells us that this other Spartan is the sole survivor of Thermopylae from the Spartans. He is the only one who lived. And remember what we talked about death, what the mentality of Sparta was. It was a disgrace that this guy lived and everyone else had died. And so this man was mad for war. He absolutely craved battle. He had done nothing but run around for over a week, switching back and forth from the left flank to the right flank to the left flank, and on and on and on. And it was driving him crazy. And so Pausinius is trying to convince this guy to move back, and he refuses. Pausinius is telling them that everybody in the council voted to move back. And so what this guy does is terrific. The Spartan walks over, grabs this giant rock, and walks over to Pausinius and drops it at his feet and says, yeah, well, this is my vote. What he's doing here is like showing up to a voting station with a ballot the size of a novelty check. Like you just won Publisher's Clearinghouse or something. 
while they're in the middle of this heated debate, the sun comes up. Remember, the Greeks have been moving back overnight. And so now the Spartans stand by themselves. And as the sun comes up, the Persians can see them. They see that the Spartans are totally isolated. And so they start to move. The Spartans see the Persians coming. And one little disconnect here, we don't know if they were able to get a message to the Athenians or not. Herodotus says that they were. Plutarch tells a slightly different story, and that's the one I'm going to go with here. So a little disconnect here, but the story is basically the same otherwise. So as the Persian army approaches, the Spartans form up. They form into a phalanx. And this is a solid wall of men and spears. There's no getting through it. The Persians creep closer, but don't engage. They hang back, they set up these big wicker shields, and then behind these shields, their archers position and start shooting arrows. Javelins come flying in. And so the entire Spartan line is standing there just taking a hailstorm from the Persians. It's getting thicker and thicker as more of them show up. But the Spartans haven't had their good omen. They haven't had the sign to attack. They haven't had their sign of victory. And so what happens here is you have the Spartans up front just taking the storm from the Persians. And then a little ways back, you have Pausanias. His seer is making sacrifices and rooting through, looking for the good omen, but it doesn't show up. Think about what kind of discipline this is. He can't give the word for his army to engage. And so you have the whole Spartan line just sitting here taking it while the seer and their general are behind them killing animals one after another, sacrificing, looking for a good omen. The Spartans are starting to die. This one man falls, he catches an arrow, and as he's dying, he says he doesn't mind dying so much, but he wished he was able to strike a blow first. Pausinius is starting to get desperate. He's starting to weep as the animals are dying in front of him. He can't get the sign that he wants, and so as he gets more and more desperate, he eventually turns up to the sky, throws his hands up in the air, and cries up to the gods that if him and the Spartans are going to die, at least let us do it with honor. And right as he's crying out, literally streaming tears to the gods, the seer finds the sign. The seer nods to the general. The general gives the word go to his army. And I love the way Plutarch puts this. As the word to engage came to the Spartan army, he says that the phalanx bristled like an animal. The barbarians then got assurance that their contest was to be with men who would fight to the death. The Spartans hit the Persians at a run. The first fight took place right at those wicker shields, which were quickly torn aside. The Persians threw down their bows, drew out their swords, and started to fight. The Persians fought bravely. Man for man, they couldn't really contend with the Spartans because they were so heavily armored. So the way the Persian soldiers would fight, they would be together in one group, and little brave clusters would break off and engage the Spartans. As the Spartans were closing around this bigger group, the group would grab the Spartan spears and snap them so that the Spartans would then have to fight with their swords. The Persians were not giving up. They would engage man for man and usually die for it. The Athenians were so far away that they couldn't see any of this going on, but noise of battle started to reach them. And so they came over in small groups because the main army of the Athenians was held up by the Thebans. 
The Thebans were Greeks who had allied with the Persians. And as they came towards the Athenians, Aristides stepped out in front of the Athenian army and started invoking all the Greek gods to this other Greek army that they should stop, that they should join forces, that they were on the same side. And the Thebans didn't even slow down. The Athenians and the Thebans were engaged on one side. On the other, the Spartans were fighting the main core of the Persian army. In this, Mardonius was there. He was at the hottest part of the fighting. He was surrounded by 1,000 of his picked men. And as long as he was alive, things seemed to go okay for the Persians. But as the Spartans pushed further and further into this Persian force, Mardonius was killed. His guard was killed, and the Persians began to fall back. And when they did, the Thebans also, in turn, began to fall back. The Persians were destroyed so thoroughly that the Greeks went all the way to their camp. Posenius actually walked into the tent of Mardonius. There was gold and silver and rich food all around him. Posenius laughed at this. He said, they were trying to deprive us of our Spartan simple life. To convert us to this? He tells his cooks to prepare a meal in the Spartan fashion. And so, out of all this grandeur, this simple little meal is made. The Thebans retreat back to their city. It's put under siege by the Greek army, and after 19 days, they surrender. The leaders are taken back to Corinth, where they're pretty sure they'll be able to get off with a couple well-placed bribes. But Pausinius isn't here to mess around. On the way back to Corinth, he sends the rest of the allied Greek army home and then has these Theban leaders executed. Any allies of Persia are either dead or have abandoned Persia, and at the same time that the Battle of Plataea took place, another battle at sea took place, which unfortunately we don't have time to get into, but the Persians were defeated there as well. The Persians were destroyed. So finally, just like after the Battle of Salamis, the question became, who should be awarded the prize of valor? Since the Persians are gone now, this prize means quite a bit. If you're awarded it in the last, final, biggest battle against the Persians, that's a high place of honor. And in moving forward, it's going to give you a bit of an edge over all these other Greek city-states. The Spartans think they deserve it, and frankly, I can't really blame them. The Athenians also think they should get it, and they don't want the Spartans to get it. Immediately after the victory, there is already tension between Athens and Sparta. Both of them want it, and it's Aristides that suggests that the Hellenes, the Greeks as a whole, should vote on it. Somebody suggests, well, it obviously can't go to either the Athenians or the Spartans, or we might risk a civil war. And so everybody expected the Corinthians to be nominated. After Sparta and Athens, they were the major player. They were the most powerful city-state in the area. But instead, a proposal was made for Plataea. And it delighted everybody. Plataea, remember, were the ones that gave up their land to the Athenians, so that this whole battle technically took place in Athenian territory. A trophy was built for the Plataeans. They gave him a share of the wealth that they had took from the Persians. And then both Sparta and Athens went off and built their own trophies of victory for themselves. Technically speaking, this is the end of the Persian Wars. Greece continues to fight Persia, but it no longer takes place in mainland Greece. Instead, with this newfound peace, with this newfound power and wealth that they've taken from the Persians, Greece begins its golden age, which we will begin next week. 
Thanks a lot for listening to History in the Making. I hope you enjoyed this special episode on Plataea. This is one story I've really been looking forward to, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. They haven't seen the good omen that says they should engage in battle, and they're not going to do that until they do. They're not going to do that until they do, seriously.